This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. You know, Swapnil, you're the CEO of Zenny, which is a tech-powered bookkeeping, tax, and CFO service designed for startup founders, you know, and, and being in capital markets, uh, working day and night with startups. I know firsthand how much of a pain point, you know, startup finance is, especially in the early days when you don't have a full-time CFO. And for those also uh, curious to know, you're a three-time entrepreneur. You've had two exits. You're also an angel investor in more than 30 startups, a lot of them with an AI background. So really excited to, to dig in. And what I wanted to start with, actually, given your background, you started, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, you were born in India and you sort of started your academic plus early professional career in India as well. Is that correct? How was it like in the early 2000s, you know, working for a company like IBM in India, you know, just coming off of university? What was the tech atmosphere like back then? Yeah, when I graduated from my undergrad, the the tech scene was pretty hot. And we were obviously, I think, pretty excited about all these big brands like IBM and uh, Symantec. And when we... IBM was one of the companies that came to our campus interviews in our university. And they pretty much took the top 10 folks from our class, from computer science. All of them got jobs at IBM. So it was pretty exciting to be uh, part of IBM in the first two years of my career. Because luckily I was part of the IBM software labs and not the global services. So in the software labs, they worked on more interesting projects. And it included more research. And that meant that uh, we could work on projects that were a bit less realistic and hence a bit more exciting. So I think I was lucky to be part of that division to work on projects that were uh, a bit more forward looking than just focused on services. What do you think? And, and I, I feel like I, I know a bit of the anecdotes to the answer, but maybe for, for those wondering, what do you think makes India such a powerhouse when it comes to computer engineering? And if you look at Google, if you look at Apple, uh, sorry, not Apple, I should say Microsoft, you know, um, and even PepsiCo. I mean, Indian CEOs have really climbed the the ranks for some of the, the biggest Fortune 500 companies. And I'm just curious, like, what do you believe that thread is of commonality? Yeah, I think there are, I would say, two threads here. One is like the, the education. I think in India, a lot of folks adopt and are really good at mathematics uh, during their early days of college, which makes them a really good fit for engineering, which makes them a really good fit for uh, computer engineering or computer programming. So I think that stream in India is really, really strong. Uh, There's, like we always joke in India that when a kid is born, their parents look at the kid and say that, hey, my kid will either be an engineer or a doctor, right? There are no other professionals that they even think about. So (laughs) right from day one, the, the kid is like almost like psychologically ready to either be an engineer or a doctor. And, and both those professions are uh, amazing to be in. And that kind of is like the culture that uh, we have in the society and the, the middle class in India is really, really big. So the so this is one thread where the education is, is taken so seriously that every parent wants to make sure that their kids are really well educated and they give everything, sacrifice everything till the last penny to make sure that their kids have an amazing life in the future. And I think that is like, pretty much in the bones of all Indian parents. And that's why you will see all these Indian CEOs who are running Google and Microsoft, they have come from that 
uh, middle class families who have extremely strong values for education and 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 humanity so that's one thread and the other thread is just I think Indians are extremely hardworking and they like to always be better versions of themselves, always like to create things, always uh, like to be super sincere. A lot of them are uh, spiritual, religious, so that works to their advantage in, in handling stress, be calm in, in, in moments when things are crashing down. So I think all these things, if you mix it together, that creates a pretty unique human being who can add a lot of value to big corporations, to startups and, and create magic in the world. But I, I definitely resonate when you say, you know, your parents uh, believe there, there are three categories. I ended up going to business or finance because my dad was in finance as well. But in the Middle East, it's very much the same, right? Doctor, lawyer, engineer, and the rest is nothing, right? So, um which sometimes could also work in the advantage of someone who isn't in those categories because you have to work even harder, you know, to to, to be even seen. Um, so given that you worked in IBM, Symantec, and then I believe it was Yahoo. I mean, these are these are these are significant companies. They're they're exciting, probably more exciting, you know, in the early 2000s up. But still, you know, significant companies in their era. And I'm curious, what, what did you develop in those three uh, corps? that you ended up taking on your entrepreneurial journey thereafter? Yes, yeah, so I think IBM, like I was super young and IBM was my first job. So what I really wanted to achieve at IBM is just how to be a good programmer, right? That was my goal because I was fresh out of college and never really programmed or, or, or built products in the, in the real corporate world. So the IBM journey of two years was all about how do I become good at programming and, and building things that can actually be useful. And I knew from day one that the IBM journey is going to be probably an year or two year because uh, I knew that I wanted to go to US to do my master's in computer science. So left IBM after two years, came to US, did my master's in computer science from, from University of Southern California. By the way, uh, I'm one of the identical twin brothers. I also have an evil version that is my identical twin and both of us uh, did our masters from USC and then both of us worked at Symantec, then both of us worked at Yahoo and then we started our first company, second company and third company together. So he's enjoying a free ride while I'm doing all the hard work. But to come back to your question, at USC basically we did our masters in computer science with a focus on computer networking and that is when we really understood like the depth of the, the the technology that you can build using computer programming and that experience was amazing because USC is one of the top schools when it comes to computer science and then after that we started working at Symantec. Symantec is where we got a taste of how to build products in an extremely secured way and after that we moved to Yahoo and we the, the fundamental reason like move to Yahoo was pretty strategic because we wanted to move to the Bay Area because we knew we wanted to start our own company and Beria was the best place to do that, network with folks, network with other entrepreneurs, advisors, investors, etc. So Yahoo was kind of a stepping stone for us. And when we started at Yahoo, we had already started moonlighting on our first startup, which was a music streaming service uh, for, the, for the Indian domain. And Yahoo actually hired us because of our entrepreneur uh, mindset. Yahoo always encouraged people to do side projects over the weekend, moonlight on things, because that made them better uh, engineers for Yahoo. So what we really learned at Yahoo is how do you build platforms that can scale to 100 million plus users? Because even one page, like even if you build one page at Yahoo, that used to get traffic worth tens of millions of uh, users. So 
everything at Yahoo was about scale. So both me and Snell really learned how to build those platforms that can scale massively. And we used that to our advantage to build our first music streaming service, Dhingana, which actually scaled massively. We had more than 10 million listeners listening to music every single month from 100 countries around the world. And then, then that got acquired by RDO, which started, which was started by Skype founders. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, uh, Dingana, to to folks listening, I mean, I guess it's like the Spotify or even the Angami version. Again, being Middle Eastern, Angami is our, you know, uh, our uh, Dingana, and for it to become, yeah, and and for it to become the world's number one. They they started during the same time that we did. It was a pretty great. Oh, service. really? Interesting. I didn't know. Yeah, twenty eleven, I guess something like that um yeah and you became the number one indian music streaming service through that and funny enough you bring up your brother i watched i was doing a bit of homework for the podcast and i watched a video of, of you two it was like an interview i couldn't remember exactly which but uh and i was like which one is swapney because I, I was trying to figure out you know who i was going to be talking to and uh it was a little bit difficult i had to do a bit more more research to figure that part out do you find it or did you find it difficult in when you started Dingana with your brother um, to be in business with a family member, let alone a sibling? No, it was actually super complimentary. It was the opposite of being difficult because both of us had complementary skill sets. While I focused on A, he focused on B. So I was more focused on building the front end while he was focused on building the entire back end. And both of us had complementary skill sets and, and both of us used to move really fast. So we ended up building a lot of things pretty much every single day we used to make progress. And because we think alike, we didn't have to spend time syncing up or be on the same page. It used to happen almost automatically. So that really allows us to run fast in, in each of our startups. Yeah, that's. Um, do you think that's a bit of a thread of being uh, or having the Indian background? Because you're very family oriented, do you think that helps a little bit? Uh, that that can help a little bit, but I think what also works to our advantage is us being identical twin brothers. So that actually, I think uh, psychologically and and mentally and from a skill set perspective, that brings us closer than just being normal brothers. And uh, my dad has some stories that when we were young, like I think four years, if my stomach used to pain, his stomach used to start paining as well. So there is some some invisible connection between us as well that I think works to our advantage when we build and scale our startups. Yeah, I mean, you also have someone to share your stress and your pressure and your down points with, right? And and equally, the, the good days, right? Like you can uplift each other during the, you know, the, the small wins and the big wins as well. I think that 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 carries a lot of advantage. That's huge. I think just just uh, talking to someone who exactly knows what you're talking about and exactly knows how you're thinking and then brainstorming about difficult things, easy things, it just makes it uh, easier to to cross that bridge and, and as I said, also move faster than just say talking to a normal co-founder because we never have co-founder issues. We never have to find a co-founder before we start a startup. And that whole phase is extremely time-consuming, and finding a right co-founder is also a pretty hard thing. It's hard, yeah. Well, also building the trust. Like even if you find someone, you know, you still have to give it a year or two to really make sure you trust that CTO or CEO or COO, whatever the title is. One of the things I find very interesting with with your story, especially on the entrepreneurial side, like once you left Yahoo, you started Dingana, you sold that to uh, RDO. And then you go on to uh, co-found another uh, business called Mezzi. 
Now, if you look at Mezzi, it was a, a corporate travel startup. You know, is sort of think of it like an AI-powered travel concierge, where it helps you know businesses uh, book their travel, kind of like a personal travel assistant. What what I find really interesting, and one of the questions I had for you is like, what is you or your your process of ideating? Because they're all very different ideas. They have no common thread. Yeah, so that's a great question, George. Like, I believe that the best way to solve a pain point is if you are living that pain point. So every time we started a company, it was because it was a big problem for us. And we had in and out idea of how that problem was, how difficult it was, and what is our dream state for solving that problem. So when we started Dhingana, it was because we were really Bollywood music buffs. We love Bollywood music. And when we traveled to USC, we had no access to it. So we said that, okay, we want to listen to our favorite music. We hosted a server in our bedroom and used to stream that music from uh, Semantic when we used to work there. And before we knew it, like we had thousand people streaming music from our bedroom. And we were like, how are these people finding this website? And then that thousand became 50,000, 100,000. So that's how it started. And then when we started Messi again, it was for us because we saw that we were getting busier and busier by the day. And if you want to do other things in your life, you really have to tune out of what you're doing and then tune into all these like different little things that you want to work on. And imagine having a back a hand behind your back who works as, an, as your assistant, simplifies your life on a daily basis and then ends up transforming it as a result of that. So we thought that, hey, if we had that kind of an assistant who can really help busy people, it can be transformative for, for that individual. And that is where that idea was born. But you cannot give an assistant to every American. It has to be AI plus human. And the human angle is important because the, the consumer needs to have the trust that this assistant will work 100% of the times. But for you to scale it to, to millions of people, it has to be AI. So from day one, we knew we wanted to build an AI-powered assistant. And then as we started building building the company, we realized that it cannot be a generic assistant. It cannot be a fashion-oriented assistant. We need to focus on one vertical. And data proved that travel should be that vertical for us because the engagement that we were seeing in travel was was way higher compared to other verticals. And that's, that's how we pivoted into being a AI-powered travel concierge for business travelers. It seems like one, one theme that I think keeps emerging from your your answers and your conversation is scalability. That that's something I, I keep hearing from you. And what I wonder with, with your mindset is in regards to scaling. First of all, how do you how do you think about scaling as you're ideating for a pain point? So you answered the first part. It's like, all right, I, I have a personal pain point and I think there's an actual market for this and we have the capacity to solve for it using technology. The second question is, is this going to scale? Do you, do you have to sort of check that box before you actually start putting together the idea or the product? I think it's a very smart thing to do before you actually start building stuff to really understand how this is going to scale. Because if your idea is something that is going to always be hard to scale, then it's going to fail at some point. And scalability is so, so important. Like in, in every vertical in your startup, like, if you're building technology, it needs to scale to millions of users because if it doesn't, then you cannot be a multi-billion dollar company. If you are going to build that product, you need 
a team of humans that can scale such that the product can be successful, especially with us, with Mezzi and with Zenny, we are building AI-powered human-assisted platforms, which means that as our AI product scales, the humans that are supporting that product also need to scale. But if the humans are scaling faster than our product, then we become a services business, which isn't really fun. So the whole idea is like, how do you build technology platforms that can scale in a level in, in a way that the there needs to be the right balance between the technology and the humans, such that the machines and the humans are working together to create that experience that is 10x faster than what what you are used to today. So thinking about scale, both both from a team perspective, technology perspective is really important. Having the experience to build those teams and those products that can scale is even more important. Were you surprised when uh, when you were building Mezzi and it ended up being acquired by American Express? Going through that second M&A process, what, what was that feeling like for you and your brother, just out of curiosity? The feeling was amazing. I think one and a half year into Mezzi, we started feeling strongly in our gut that it's going to be there is a very high chance that this startup is going to be acquired because what we were building was so differentiated and as all these big companies are scaling their own user bases which and offering services which are 100% human powered we knew that either these big companies are going to build it or buy it and building it is going to be very hard because you don't have the AI DNA Right, So it's best for you to buy it and then build a team around it so that you can move faster. So we knew that there is going to be a lot of interest for the technology that we are building and the way we are building it because it was very differentiated. It was probably the only platform that was scaling in the travel vertical, which was AI human assisted. So we, we always felt very strongly about it. And when MX expressed their interest in acquiring us, it, it wasn't really a surprise. And we had worked with them as partners for the last one year. So we knew that Amex could be an amazing home for us. We knew the team really well. We knew the, the executive leadership. Uh, this deal was like Ken Chinal himself met with us, had dinner with us. The president was involved, VP, SVP, everyone were, were involved. So this had visibility at the highest level. And that gave us the confidence that Mezi can, can really have an amazing home at Amex. Well, it's also a big name, right? It's not like, I mean, it... M&A at any front, if it's successful, at least it's favorable. But when it's also when it carries that brand name, right, it's different as an entrepreneur because it almost becomes like a bit of a badge, right? You know, a three-time entrepreneur, two, two, two successful exits, the exits were to Amex. Like, that's a pretty big, bold statement. Um, I was going to ask you something. Oh, yeah, I remember now. So the question I had, still around M&A, when do you know it's the right time to let go? So... I, I, I don't think it's about letting go because when you're getting acquired, first of all, what we thought about when we got, got an acquisition uh, offer from Amex was that, hey, in the next two years, if we can scale Mezi 300% each year, can Amex allow us to scale it by 5,000% each year? Can it have a drastic impact on what we are building? Can our go-to-market be accelerated at such a rate that we can never do it as a standalone company? And if that's the case, and if we know the team, and the team is amazing, and the, the value that we are getting for the team and for the company is amazing, then yes, let's let's do this. But the idea was always, like that's why I said that it's not about letting go, because even after the acquisition, you have to make sure that 
those goals are achieved so we were there for, at mx for almost like 2 years after that because we wanted to make sure that mezi as a platform is so deeply integrated into the mx system that it continues to power the concierge at mx for the next 30 50 years that was our goal like we wanted to enter the books of history of american express with that platform and today more than 100 million card members of american express are all being serviced over mezi as a platform the execs at mx say that it was one of their most successful acquisition so it was also about creating a legacy that we all can be super proud of not just me and snehal but the entire mezi team that that's like such a big event in our lives that it it needs to be left behind in the best possible way so even when we transitioned out of mezi we told the leadership at mx that hey we are going to work on our next startups but don't worry in the next 6 months we are going to make sure that everyone who goes with us we will hire their replacements and we will leave mezi in the best hands possible so that it continues to run like it's running today and by letting go i meant more so you know after you stay with amex for let's say the the transitionary period and stuff but to some extent you're basically letting it go in the best way possible to your point which is the the most ideal way um but it's still a hard proposition even if it's a successful outcome for everyone involved um you know you still kind of have to move on yeah you always think that hey yeah what if we like mezi was such a quick acquisition it was we got an acquisition offer 2 years into the company in 2 and a half years the acquisition was done we always think that hey what if we had run the company for two two more years maybe we could we could have sold it for a billion or <laughs> 500 million you always get those thoughts but i think at that point in time it was the best decision that we did and and zeni wouldn't have happened if we we wouldn't have sold mezi and zeni is already at probably uh, 10x more velocity than mezi was at the same stage so we couldn't have been happier of all the decisions we have made in the last few years how long of a break did you take once you like fully you know closed off uh, mezi between that and, and zeni was it like immediately or did you take a break did you go on vacation what was your uh, step no vacations no breaks the thing is george like when you really get excited about solving a problem the excitement and the passion is so high that you you don't even think about taking a break right you 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 just think to yourself that hey how can i start working on this as soon as possible like it's kind of a suffocation feeling you get that should i need to work on this like tomorrow like today i can't waste any more time because in in the world of startups anyways like time is your biggest currency so the, the faster you move the better for you Yeah, that that's always an important reminder because I think that's the the misconception, right? You have a good M&A outcome and people think like you're right off to the sunset, but for most successful entrepreneurs who do it because they love it, you know, they that's not really the your purpose. Like it's it's a positive outcome or it's a consequence, but it's not necessarily something you're like you don't go into a startup thinking I can't wait to get this exited, you know. Um or at least the good ones don't. So, when you started Zenny Where was that pain point? Was it when you were working on Mezi in terms of having that CFO tool suite at your at your disposal? Yeah, that's a great question. So the pain point was really right from the first start of Dingana. When we were at Dingana, we had a part-time bookkeeper who used to come to our office one uh, once a week and work on our books and she used to make some mistakes. Right before our board meeting, we used to spend like 3-4 days clearing her mistakes and get ready for the board meeting. It was pretty stressful. at mezi we had raised up a, a bit more money than we did at dingana so we were like okay we let's make a smarter decision we hired a finance firm the experience was still the same instead of one part time bookkeeper we had 
टू और थ्री अकाउंटेंट्स एंड बुककीपर्स ऑन देयर साइड वर्किंग ऑन ए बुक्स बट अगेन इट वॉज ऑल मैन्यूअल वी हैड एक्सेल शीट्स फ्लाइंग बैक एंड फोर्थ ओवर ई मेल दे डेंट स्टार्ट वर्किंग ऑन आर बुक कीपिंग अंटिल द मंथ एंडेड then they take 2 to 3 weeks to close our books and then send back excels we had no real time insights into how you are spending money where we are spending money on a day to day basis we didn't know what our net burn was unless we sit and calculate it and uh, so all these things were extremely frustrating for us because finances is the backbone of your company right majority of the startups fail because they run out of cash and they run out of cash because they have no idea where they are spending until the point that it's too late for them to to take a action so if you look at the way startups are managing their finances it's extremely reactive and super slow fragmented so we wanted to change that because we lived that for almost a decade and we knew exactly what that pain point was and we knew as founders what we wanted to see in in terms of fixing that pain point like what kind of solution would fix that pain point so from day one at zeni we knew that we want to create a platform that can do bookkeeping on a daily basis and give us real time insights into how we are spending money where we are spending money on a daily basis so the entire platform that we have built at zeni is the the first of its kind it's almost like a real time bookkeeping platform if you are a startup using zeni you have a team of finance experts assigned to you a dedicated team but that team works hand in hand with our ai powered platform to do bookkeeping for you almost every single day so we almost do a virtual close on your books every single day and today morning you will know exactly where you spent your money yesterday and as a result of that our month end close is super fast everything is on the zeni dashboard you see all the insights net burn cash burn runway when you will be out of money your forecasting actuals versus budgets your opex everything on the zeni dashboard and you can just share that dashboard with your investors with your advisors with your team members executives everything so it just makes your life easy and it gives you the trust that someone solid is having your back so that's so that's how we built it and the interesting thing i guess for for startups is that they're able to use this really anytime especially if they can you know if they can pay for it but i, I do think it's worth that monthly cost because uh, it's something that it's a platform that they can carry on using throughout their life cycle right so as they build up to a vp finance a bookkeeper a cfo you know it's just more intelligence that they can work with so it's not something that they can use just once and you know let go of it essentially yep very true right i think that that's the most yep. important part. it's kind of like for folks again it maybe a, a good visual is like it's a more enhanced version of mint but for a startup yeah that's a great way to look at it because what mint did to your personal finances zeni dashboard does for your business finances but the big difference is that mint doesn't come with bookkeepers and accountants and cfos zeni comes with it so so if you want to build an internal finance team you will end up spending more than 500000 each year to do that zeni gives you that internal finance team who is accessible every single day plus with a mint like any dashboard that can give you all the insights you need into your finances yeah that's amazing big need um i wanted to wrap up with with uh, talking about twin ventures i love the name by the way For, i think now people understand why it's uh, twin ventures i'm assuming you and your brother both invest out of the fund um yeah a lot of your investments and you've made more than 30 but a lot of them are centered around ai based companies and and i'm curious like given that you're in the industry what do you actually look for when scoping out their tech before making that or writing that check great question 
so so before that let me just give you a quick insight into like why ai right so because of mezi we we got this first hand experience of building ai powered platforms that can scale to millions of users and with zeni we actually took the blueprint from mezi and we applied it to the finance vertical so we did successfully in in, in the world of travel and that now we are scaling it in the world of finances so for the last several years we and our team have become experts at building ai powered human assisted platforms which allows us to take a deeper look into ai powered startups when we get an opportunity to invest in them but that also means that the founders for those startups get access to us and our operational expertise of building ai uh, ai powered solutions so that that is the reason why we said that we will just focus on ai because that trend is going to explode and there are very few investors who really understand ai they can go five level deeps and really look at the platform and and look at the founders and their backgrounds and see are these the right people to solve these ai uh, problems or not so that was our thesis and that's why we are focusing on uh, ai investments only and when we look at ai investments we the first thing we we look for is that is this a deep tech ai platform or is ai just a feature in a platform that is not really ai powered so if it's ai first company then we are we are super interested and then we look at the founders and their backgrounds are they the right people to build this platform or do they just have an idea and will need someone else to help them build that platform so we really like to invest in teams that have the technical expertise to build those platforms from day one and then we can help them really uh, with all the scalability issues with the way you think about it the strategy the go to market etc mm. yeah it's almost like you're building an ecosystem which is very interesting the way you look at it right that that strategic capital what one last question actually because you you talked a little bit about ai um there's always this resistance about not necessarily artificial intelligence but it seems like still today people are you know you hear this phrase that well it's not really ai it's actually just big data and it's mushed together and like there seems to be a bit of cynicism around whether it's actually ai or whether it's maybe a subset of it, its early functions essentially how what is real ai to you and and do you actually see it in, in today's technology oh yeah absolutely it totally depends on which technology you are looking at so the way i look at it is pretty simple like the way we look at ai is like is this being done by a human today and are you actually replacing his intelligence with machines to do the same job that's the easiest way to look at it now there are two ways to build ai powered platforms or or solutions one is that you completely replace that human with machines 100% of the times every single time the second is you convert that human into a superhuman by giving him ai powered products that can enhance his human abilities 10x 100x 1000x over a period of time as you keep building those platforms so i would say we fall in that category where we are taking humans and enhancing them and converting them into superhumans with mezi we converted travel agents into super travel agents with zeni we are converting all these finance experts into super finance experts by giving them all these ai powered tools the i'm going to lead with with one more for you very quickly which is what advice given you know repeat founder successful exits you've invested in so many startups what advice would you give to to aspiring founders looking to to get in the game yeah i i would say like if you are really serious about a problem and and genuinely feel in your gut that that problem needs to be solved and you can solve it in a in in a very unique and differentiated way 
jump in i think 90% 98% of the founders just think 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 and never end up jumping into the startup because you will always have a zillion reasons why now is not the right time but in reality now is the best time and every day you wait the time will actually be worse than it was before so jump in try to solve that problem as fast as you can and if it fails you will actually be perceived as even more successful than your counterparts who never tried a startup because in there is a saying in silicon valley that if you fail once you actually have a, a higher chance of succeeding in your in your next startup and if you fail twice you even have a higher chance of succeeding in your third startup but if you fail thrice then it's a pattern it's a dangerous thing <laughs> if you found this podcast useful make sure to share it out with your community and if you haven't already done so subscribe to the podcast and i'll see you next time